Shira Wanda Serrano. I'm Ariana Ruiz. I'm Renee Rocha. And this is Imagining Latinidades. Thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, we are here finishing up a, uh, a symposium in Iowa City, Iowa on Latino, Latina, Latinx migration. Uh, my name is Daryl Wanza Serrano. I'm one of the hosts, uh, and I'm joined by three uh, special guests who have just delivered uh, just amazing lectures uh, about different aspects of Latina, Latino, Latinx migration, uh, some focused in the Midwest, some focused more nationally. Uh, and it's, it's just been an invigorating day of learning, uh, and of engagement. And so what we're, what we're going to do here, uh, is we've got a, a live audience that we're recording this in front of today again. Yeah. Thank you. And, uh, and, you know, if you, if you've been listening to the podcast, you know, uh, from our last, uh, from our opening conference that we, you know, we, we try to talk to all of our invited guests, um, not just about their, the research that they presented here, uh, as part of Imagining Latinidades, but also just about their experiences coming into Latino, Latino studies, uh, and what the field kind of means to them, uh, and what, you know, what it, what it can and should mean to their students and their institutions, uh, and the other communities of which they are a part. Uh, and so I'm, so I'm joined by the three, uh, the three lecturers who, uh, who we brought in town for this, uh, Karma Chavez from the University of Texas at Austin, uh, uh, Maura Toromorn from, uh, Illinois State University, um, and Fidencio Fifield Perez. Thank you so much for being here. The question I want to start with is the one that, that we kind of started the podcast with when, uh, when Ariana and Renee and I started doing this, and that is the question of origins. And I know each of you actually kind of addressed this to a certain extent, either today or while you've been in town in front of my class, uh, Karma. Uh, but it, what I'm wondering is, when and how did you get your start uh, doing, you know, in, in terms of what you consider as doing Latina, Latino, Latinx studies? So when did you really kind of get your start coming into contact with this field um, and having that field kind of affect how you were doing the kind of work that you do? So whatever that happens to mean to you. Well, I can go first. I This is karma. I think that for me, it really wasn't until I got my first job at the University of New Mexico that I actually started to really connect with the field. I mean, I hadn't really even actually heard a lot about, a, about Latino studies. I'd heard about black studies and ethnic studies, but it was just not a thing. And so at the University of New Mexico, I learned about the, it was called the Southwest, Southwest Hispanic Research Institute. It's now Chicano Studies Department, which is awesome. But then it was just this institute. And so I just started going to the meetings because my work was about immigration. And I thought, well, probably it makes sense to be thinking about this in the Latino studies context, whatever that is. So that's really got into it. And then, you know, from then on, I've pretty much been all in. Hi, my name is Maura Toromorn, and um, it's really interesting sort of how I came across sort of Latino studies, because for me, women and gender studies really was the home that provided um, the, the space to be able to think through a lot of issues that I was dealing with doing research about women. And so in there, there were other Latinas that were also 
grappling with some of these issues. And so for me, there are two ways in which I come into Latino studies. One, in sociology, there's actually um, now several generations of us that that were part of the ASA meetings and were part of the founding of the Latino sociology uh, group at the ASA, the American Sociological Association. And so there was a group that started forming there, um, that, and we were all doing issues, doing research about Latinos. But the, the topic itself and the, the larger body of work didn't really materialize for me until uh, I came across the journal, the Latino Studies Journal, as a, as a space where I saw the work. There were other journals, to be sure, as Atlan, Centro, but there were journals that tended to be more ethno-racial, right, in terms of the... But the Latino Studies Journal, I think, was a, an important space for me to be able to visualize that body of work, to find that body of work, and then to try to then sort of um, articulate and bring that to Illinois State University and sort of craft a home for myself at ISU. Hi, this is Fidencio, and I am the odd person out, I think, because formally there, I've never been in an institution that formally had a space like this. Um, I did my undergrad at Memphis College of Art, and I think our, our the, my class was like 60 or 80 people. And so it, all of our classes encompassed mainly just making, but I think formally how I started to get a lot of the language was around the same time when I was graduating from there. Um, 2013, when DACA happened, Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, what that that did is um, force me to then interview my own family about what it meant. Um, so maybe my studies was more personal, familial. Um, and then also just around that time, also my, my practice encompassed taking what was being put out um, and trying to make visual language for it. But that meant clipping newspaper articles that just mentioned Latinos and uh, having all of those in my studio on a wall and saying like, what is the thing that is connecting all of them? Oh, it's how they talk about this subgroup of people, quote unquote, or the other. Um, so it was, I think for the most part, really just on my own. And then my master's at Iowa, again, all the classes were in, in the making. And so this might be, I think the, the medias part to my formal background, maybe academic. You're not, you're not that far. I mean, I, you, you called yourself the odd man out, but I, I didn't, we didn't have Latino, Latino studies, anything like that at my undergraduate institution. And as a graduate student um, at Indiana University, now I think they offer a graduate minor in Latino studies, but at the time it was just an undergraduate program. Uh, and so I, really, honestly, maybe I shouldn't say this on, on the podcast, my, my, fr my, fr my first kind of formal connection with like a Latino studies program was when I got hired to teach intro to Latino studies um, at Indiana uh, because I'd started doing my what became a new dissertation topic on the Young Lords and started immersing myself in that literature and, and did like, you know, a history class um, on kind of a Puerto Rican studies history class, independent study. Um, and I'd started reading more broadly in another class that I stuck around to take. Uh, but yeah, it was, it was really partly the, the learning through preparing to teach the course because there weren't, 
really many other people around to teach that course either um, at that time. But yeah, I think that's something that though you did. You yeah, actually, I was not educated here in the United States. My undergraduate experience was actually in Puerto Rico, and so for me that entailed you know a migration of sorts, right? An intellectual migration and the actual you know sort of movement. But before there was Latino studies, there was Puerto Rican studies for me. And so Puerto Rican studies becomes kind of this a space, an intellectual space that allows me to find other people that are doing research about, you know, Puerto Rican issues. Mm-hmm. And so um, that for me, and it, and it actually, I remember, because there was a, there were several of us that are doing, that were doing research about Puerto Rican Chicago, um, colleagues whose name you will recognize in the literature, Marisa Licea, Nilda Flores, Gina Perez, who's been part of the, the program. Um, and there were others whose name escaped me right now, but, uh, it was actually when we were at a Puerto Rican studies conference in Puerto Rico, uh, that took place in the, I want to say in the early 1990s, that then, you know, it was clear that we were all doing diaspora work, right? Mm-hmm. That we were all doing this kind of area and and kind of started connecting it to what was bubbling to the surface as Latino studies. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think in art also, the, the waves are changing now, but um, identity politics was almost frowned upon also a couple of years ago to quote unquote be making work about yourself in the visual somehow again that seems to be the area where art for art's sake gets like gets the ultimate privilege to just not ha- actually have context with the rest of the world that somehow you can go to a wall and not take into consideration like who works there the text all that's supposed to be just like take it for granted you're not supposed to analyze it and yeah i just maybe that's Maybe because I didn't see myself in so many of those spaces, I was forced to analyze everything. And maybe I think that that ability to just analyze and be critical and petty and judgy really is how then in my own work, I guess, maybe now gets created something visually. Maybe I wasn't seeing it, but clearly there were also people in the Bay Area, Julio Salgado and that group making incredible, incredible work. So, I mean, given given our kind of varied and also similar experiences, right, coming into contact with Latino Latino studies um, and doing this work and and not being exposed to it as part of our undergraduate education. Um, I, I, there's a couple of things that, that I'm wondering. The first is about, about your scholarship and creative activity. So like where you are now, um, how does situating the work that you do in connection with Latina, Latino, Latinx studies provide unique tools or methods to ask and answer questions that may not have been able to uh, to to quite as productively been answered or asked using more disciplinary approaches. I mean, you were just kind of hinting at this a little bit, like in art, you know, the kind of suggestion. I think you said even just a couple of years ago that identity work was really being frowned upon. So, like give it a kind of finer edge of like what being able to tap into identity does to kind of transform the work that you do and the kind of like world of the work that you do um, that, you know, not doing that doesn't allow you to do. Does that make sense? For the most part, I think, I think I'm getting it, but um, you were talking about this in your talk really, hmm. but, but I think, but oh my God. it seems like forever ago. <laughs> um, does someone want to go before I do? Maybe? <laughs> <laughs> what is the work? Um, could you rephrase that? Yeah. yeah, I mean, I think so. Uh, th- thinking specifically about about you, you were saying that really, uh, I'm, gu- I'm guessing you were referring to 
when you said a couple of years ago, maybe when you were mm-hmm. finishing up your, your MFA, how in the field focusing on kind of identity and kind of the identity politics work, right, was being frowned upon. Um, and that giving up, you know, kind of like detaching from that, right, and tapping into Latinidades in some way gave your work new direction and new life, mm-hmm. right? Um, and I think that that's probably the case for, you know, not just for, for, for your creative work, but for the other scholarly work that, that the panelists uh, do, that doing work in contact with Latino studies provides a different set of perspectives and different sets of tools uh, that allow us to even ask questions or approach the work that we're doing in ways that are different than if we were stuck within our kind of disciplinary silos, mm-hmm. right? And so I'm wondering, like, what it is that uh, that Latino Studies offers that, uh, that helps you to be able to approach even the asking of questions or starting a project or the direction a project takes uh, that you wouldn't be able to do if you were, you know, solely kind of like in that disciplinary zone. Do you want me to go first? Yeah. I I have an answer to this. So this is karma. I was thinking about when I got to the university of Wisconsin in 2010 and I was leaving New Mexico, which was a very Latinx space and going to Madison and I was slightly terrified and they have a very small Chicano Latino studies program there. And so immediately that was where I went and that was my, that was my survival the whole time I was there and there, it wasn't so much an intellectual thing as a political and kind of spiritual thing. Right. And when I got to Texas, which is where I'm doing Latinx studies full time, I'm now the chair of the department, but I didn't arrive to do such things. Um, I, was pretty intimidated because I thought, gosh, my work is really quite disciplinary in a way. I'm trained in rhetoric like you are, Daryl. And I was like, all right, I'm just going to kind of do this thing. And what I learned was I remember the first time I gave a paper to my colleagues. And so I have colleagues from, you know, English departments, from uh, Spanish and Portuguese departments, from history departments, like people trained in all these disciplines. And the feedback I got, I was like, oh, now I'm getting it. Because all of the sudden, my world just opened up in relation to my project. I was unbounded in a way that I hadn't been before, because I'd always felt so restricted in a way. And you know, it's like you and I, Daryl, in the room together, we make up like 50% of Latinos in rhetoric in our field. So, um, you know, all of a sudden I had this opening and that is the gift of Latino studies is the opening to, uh, be frankly as promiscuous as you would like to be topically, methodologically, and theoretically. Yeah. I actually have to go back to Puerto Rican studies as a space to do that because, um, and to sociology and sort of kind of juxtapose those two because when I came into sociology and I am afraid I'm probably the oldest in the, in the panel. So I'm going to kind of age myself here a little bit. When I came into sociology, one, there were very few studies about Puerto Ricans and some of the work that had been done. I mean, it had just been decades since it had been done. And I mean, I could go on forever problematizing that early work. Um, and within, and, and so, so I kind of charge myself to kind of bring Puerto Ricans to make them central in the study of, of sociology. 
um, because I just could not fathom that is a science that aimed to study society had already all of these omissions and all of these invisibilities, right? And, and even theoretically, right? But then the problem that I found then in Puerto Rican studies is that women were nowhere to be found. So there were all of these exclusions, right, as you're crossing all of these borders, where then I found this amazing body of literature about Puerto Ricans, including some books that have been written about Puerto Ricans in Chicago. And the question was, where are the women? Where are the women's stories, right? And, And we're doing all of this invisible work and it doesn't get counted. And in fact, I, I, so for me, then it became this kind of twofold kind of project of kind of adding more challenges to sociology to include more of the material that is being produced by some of my colleagues who are also Puerto Rican, but also challenging the gender biases within uh, the, the Puerto Rican migration and the Puerto Rican studies literature. And so those are sort of the, the kind of an intersection that for me fueled a lot of my work and even I think in in Latino studies, I think you could you could you could still see that there are exclusions, there are silences, and I think that there are areas that we can continue to press our colleagues to do more work and and be innovative, right? And I think the fact that we have uh, these new technologies and that um, oral histories, testimonials, uh, and the self has become, you know, kind of a space from which you can theorize autoethnographic work, I think would be something that um, sociologists were kind of, you know, at the foreground, you know, at the at the forefront of these kind of ethnographic work and turning the ethnographic lens inward. And, um, and so, I would encourage my students to follow that, right? I, I, every time I run into a student, it's like, your story is important to tell because it's another dot in that amazing map that constitutes, you know, Latinos in the Midwest or Latinos in Bloomington or kind of a long answer, sorry. No, no, no I like that. Um, yeah, I'm trying to think about, for me, I think I'm, I'm still trying to grapple or accept the fact that like what I do is Latino, Latinx studies because I think... In, in, in art, we just don't see that. It's not given that. But uh, turning inward and saying your voice matters. And then also using that as um, proof doesn't seem to be the right word, but trying to make art spaces just really full of the people that are affected by issues. Yeah, no, I'm going to have to sit with your answer, I think, for a while. But Why art? But why do you think art is so sort of resisting, right? These these new narratives. Why? I mean... Oh, my gosh. Uh, well, art in itself, I mean, it's, it's used as a way to funnel money or like talk about larger things, but um, there's many parts of art. But I think what it does perfectly is allows people and gives them the tool also to analyze images, um, how a lot of that data then becomes proof to then further stereotypes. Um, and I like to think that art just is like, that's my role anyways, is trying to give students the the confidence to chip away at visually and also articulate and synthesize ethics into an image, break down an image, break up an ad and say, like, these are why it's problematic or why it's tone deaf. Um, I might be ranting. Mm-hmm, I, think, mm-hmm. but, yeah. I like it. So, you know, all, all of us are you know, tenure track professors at <laughs> uh, research intensive universities. Um, and, my my question is kind of turning this into you know turning this back to 
uh, to what, not just you know, away from what Latino studies offers, the work that we do, the scholarship and creative work that we do, but then what it offers the university. So like what difference does it make actually or possibly, right, to have uh, Latino studies available to undergraduate students, to higher education institutions, um, and to broader communities, you know, communities outside of those institutional contexts. This is Karma again. I guess I will jump in first to say I think about this a lot as a department chair. And f- for me, well, so first of all, we don't exist without our communities. And so uh, without students in whatever era, but at my institution in the 1960s, uh, fighting without having support from adults, without a few radical administrators, professors, etc., an entire community, the institution doesn't have space for Latino studies. And so Latino studies is always accountable to the community. Uh, we should always be a resource to the community. Beyond that, within the institution itself, I say this to administrators constantly. If you think you want diversity, excellence, inclusion, all these words they love, you must have robust Latino studies. You must have robust black studies, gender women studies, all the ethnic indigenous studies, because without those centers, you're not going to be able to draw people. And it's not just people who are doing Latino studies, but if you're a Latinx person, for example, coming to a predominantly white institution and you're searching around to see what your new workplace is like, and there's no Latino cultural center, there's no Latino studies, and you have another option, you're probably going to choose that other option. Um, You know if you have Latino studies on a campus, that will be an intellectual and a cultural home. We have faculty and students all the time who aren't connected to our major, who aren't affiliates with our department, who come to our events just to feel what that feels like, to be in an all-brown space. We always serve you know, various kinds of food from <laughs> across different you know, Latinx cultures, and that is vitally important to people to feel okay in these predominantly white institutions. And so, um, you know, we, and not to mention, of course, we critique the institution. I mean, our job is to be always antagonistic, I believe, always antagonistic to the institution, right? In the sense that we call out the institution's racism. Uh, We support the other ethnic studies when people are in the crosshairs. We keep it accountable. So I think we serve a variety of functions. Yeah. No, I want to second, uh, this is Maura, um, I want to second what Karma is saying. And I think I want to also state that it is very difficult to do Latino studies in predominantly white institutions in the Midwest. It, it may be also all over the nation, but um, it, it is very difficult because it, it, you are really trying to do two jobs at the same time. You are trying to provide a home for a multiplicity of communities and a multiplicity of students that are that are needing that support, that are needing that sense of home. You're also trying to do that for some of your colleagues and your faculty, and especially some of the new hires that are coming that are in the tenure line. Um, but you also have to have this vigilant role and this 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 adversary role um, of always calling out the silences, always calling out the exclusions, and always pointing out the ways in which. Um, sometimes institutions want to pit groups against each other and they use resources as a way to do that. And you have to be ever vigilant 
to to actually prevent that from happening. So if you're giving money to Latino studies, then you have to give money to all to all of the other groups. And so for me, that is very important. Those are the day-to-day issues that makes and really complicates. I, I frequently tell my students, I'm a walking stereotype because I am doing two jobs for the price of one, right? I'm I'm a full-time faculty, plus also I'm directing this this. Latino studies program. And that's a full-time job in and of itself. But for me, it is a labor of love that I do willingly because I know that that is a way that the the university gets humanized. And that is a way that I help create spaces for the new generation of Latino students and the new generation of, you know, black and brown and, and queer voices that are coming to find a place of home and to listen and to read their, to their lives reflected at them. Um, and so I would say that um, it's very difficult to do Latino studies, but it is it is work that when you do it and you and you see the students uh, protesting, for example, ISU right now is undergoing um, the students are protesting because they're challenging how the university is using diversity as a trope without a lot of meaning. And they can see right through that. And so black and brown students are saying we we can't. We can't be students. We can't be at home in a place that is going to mistreat us, that the police encounters are going to be antagonistic and that the bureaucracy is going to be antagonistic. So um, it's kind of a long answer, but I think our workspaces, at least my workspace, um, is it, a, a difficult one, to say the least. Yeah, that's a, that's a great segment maybe into how I'm sort of on the other end where I'm seeing what it looks like to not support financially or mentoring what that looks like when it's not available to fund such a program or just faculty um, specifically going back we were t- we were talking about this where the um, I don't know if anyone saw it but um, maybe you most likely did but there was a new campaign from the um, athlete department do you yeah I think it was the athletics department at Missouri yeah um, where they came out with an ad and again the people of color um, I think they were both black, actually. They their their quotes did not look like the white students' quotes. Um, and again, that is an area in which, if they had tapped into the arts or Latino studies, someone could have said, "This is actually really tone deaf." Um, we need to analyze what happens when we perpetuate those images because they have real consequences, and, and that seems to not ha- have happened, which is why now it's become a real big issue again. Um, it's a it's yeah. a horrible example of what happens when that analyzing doesn't happen. Yeah, I think somebody at the someone at the opening conference, I forget who it was. Was it was it uh, was it Ana Sampaio uh, said was saying it was you know one of the one of the reasons to have Latino studies at universities is that it helps stop people from being from saying and doing stupid things, right? That we constantly see examples like this, right? This is a great reason why you know, everyone should be taking courses in African-American studies and Latino studies and all the different ethnic and indigenous studies because it seems like every week, even from these places that you're like, it's an institution of higher education, you know, they, 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 should, be, they should never be the ones doing this, although it seems like, a good percentage of the time they are. Um, but yeah, I mean, we see these examples every, it seems like every week of some CEO saying something just, I'm sorry, it's just, it's just, it's dumb and mistaken, right? Uh, that with a little bit of education about this, you can kind of avoid saying something just awful. Um, or, you know, it's how ho- it's Halloween season. 
Uh, so, you know, yeah. count how many times you see people in blackface and brownface and wearing, you know, Native American headdresses and all that kind of stuff, you know, over the next uh, over the next week. Uh, you know, that that's a that that sh- that should be reason enough, right? For to, to give it to give administrators pause and go, maybe this this would be a a good uh, a good thing for for our students. But you know, it's, it seems like both both of both of you, uh, uh, Karma and Mauda, have been have been directors. Uh, data doesn't always you know isn't always enough of the kind of proof for uh, for that support. Yeah, data is never enough when it uh, supports the views of marginalized people on campus. Data only matters if it supports the status quo. Yeah, yeah, that's a very good. And you know what it is, is that, I mean, we're educators and we are in the business of education, but I think we all have to continuously work on some of these issues. And I think that, you know, I sometimes am perplexed by people who in positions of power you know, still don't get it or still say the kinds of things that you might not think can come out of the, the mouth of a president uh, or, or an administrator, right? That there isn't that. And that's why I think programming, the programming that we do in addition to the courses, I think is important um, because then it takes, it takes learning outside of the classroom. And Latino studies then plays an important role in educating the entire Latino, the entire community the campus and, and the community at large. And so that for me is another uh, reason why we need Latino studies. Yeah. And that, that actually gives me a perfect segue into my next question, uh, which is, you know, building off of, off of what I just asked you about the kind of like the connection between Latino studies and community and what Latino studies offers to communities because I think this is you know first of all this is an important part of the root of Latino studies uh, karma was mentioning Latino studies on on college campuses uh, and, and as a field being born out of that experience of community protest uh, and social unrest right creating these demands for this kind of these kinds of programs uh, to start um, but I want to flip it around and think about what it is that Latino studies offers back to those communities today. Um, and so I like to anchor this in a conversation that I started uh, that I started having online with uh, with a, a now a, a PhD student at um, at Union Theological Seminary, uh, Jorge Rodriguez, uh, who was one of the first to review my book, and he's you know he was. He, he was all excited and, and started like direct messaging me on Twitter. We, we got, we started having a really, uh, really kind of in-depth conversation that's still ongoing that we, we were just, we just had this again over the phone a, a few weeks ago um, about, uh, about how our work gets out into the, into the communities that we come from and the communities that our work speaks to uh, and, and what it can mean to those communities. And so um you know, going back to those early direct messages with with Jorge, um, uh, he was always pushing me to consider this question. I'm quoting now from these from from Twitter. Uh, the question that he asked me was, "Can Tio, like in scare quotes, you know, the, the imaginary Tio, right? Can Tio understand this?" And for Jorge, this brings up kind of what he called broader questions of what it means to be a scholar of color in the academy, uh, how do we write for the academy, uh, and and for Tio in a way that both can understand, right? So how do we do our scholarship in a way that is legible in the in the academy, right? How do you do your artwork in ways that are legible to 
the committees that are evaluating you, right? But at the same time, also hold ourselves accountable to the communities we come from. And I think at the end of the day, the communities for whom we imagine ourselves doing this work for. Um, and so I'm wondering if you can if you can talk a little bit about uh, how the work that you're that you're doing and the work that you discussed here today, you know, contributes both to the kind of scholarly setting, but importantly to our kinfolk and communities outside of those scholarly spaces. I think each of you actually did this a little bit, at least in your talks today. But if you could kind of talk through it a little bit, that'd be that'd be super helpful. I think I'm seeing the pitfalls of at Iowa was in, it was completely different where I, I had the Center for Worker Justice that actually I felt like was as important as graduate school. And it was for me, I was having conversations with both that were benefiting both. And I didn't realize that that was such a privilege now being on the other end in a space in which the state is actively fighting against having any type of community student locally to have people that look like me or have the same status or lack of. And so I think I'm seeing the ramifications of not having that almost like lens or like the family to look back and say, this is what I'm doing in academia and in my personal work, maybe if that happens, um, there's not a lot of that conversation going on. And so I, I literally have to leave and go to Michigan or Chicago and find my community, art community that also is able to talk about politics. Um, so maybe maybe I'll hold off, but I could definitely talk about what happens when that is not there. That that lends to then have a reflection of or accountability with your community. I think that is not there for me. So I'm curious to hear the other two. Yeah, this is Karma again. I think for me, I'm really thinking about this all the time. I'm thinking about the venues I choose, being able to toggle back and forth between more popular writing and more academic writing, thinking about who I want to be in conversation with, whose voices I'm trying to lift up. Am I doing that right? Like I um, remember with my, when my first book came out and you know, there's, it's, it's, it's a book about queer immigration. And so I'm writing about people who, many whom I'm friends with or in conversation with, but many who I was not, some who I really agreed with, some who I really didn't. And, but I was like, I'm going to write about all of this anyway. Uh, and there's um, this friend of mine named Jose who's in Chicago, and he's someone who I write about in the book and whose work I just admire just so much. Uh, but he's, I write about his work as an example of kind of a queer politics of immigration. And I'm doing that to suggest queerness as something that is and is not about sexuality. It's mostly about uh, a particular kind of in-your-face politics. And he's like a straight dude. Um, and I remember talking to him about, so how do you feel about the fact that I talk about you this way? And he was like, you know, the first time I read it, I was like, hmm, that's kind of weird. He's like, but now I just think it's cool. And I was like, oh, thank God. Um, but those are the kinds of conversations I think that uh, for me, I'm trying to put myself in them regularly and always ready, like in kind of brace position for the times when someone's like, actually, that wasn't cool. Or please don't write about me and don't write about me in that way. Or, um, and I, and I don't always do that. I'm not always in conversation with everybody I'm writing about. Right. Um, I often am, 
but it's, I don't know. I think if you're doing politically engaged work, this is constantly a question about what should that relationship be? And I don't really have an answer. Um, and I don't think I stick with the same answer all the time. I don't know if that's very satisfying. No, I mean, it's honest. Yeah. And it has to change because the material conditions are changing and, and, you know, the, the social movements that are inspiring a lot of the scholarship is, you know, is pushing the frontiers, right, of what constitutes knowledge. And and I think that for me, this is a really good segue to um, even the notion of Latinidades and understanding Latinidades, right? I can say that when I think about the origin of my work, um, because I I was very purposeful about inserting Puerto Rican women into a lot of these conversations. Latinas in general, Puerto Rican, Mexican women, and other Central American women are vilified uh, and have been vilified. Puerto Rican women, you know, all the way to the Reagan era, you know, welfare queens and all of that language that just vilified us in the in a public sphere. And so part of my scholarship set out to humanize the experiences of Puerto Rican women, even when they themselves did not come very um, compellingly on the page, right? With the complexities of what it really means, you know, that you have to tell the story of somebody who's not making the best decisions for their for his or her family. Or or, you know, sort of you know, it's not the saint versus, you know, the 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 um the victim, right? Uh, is to really tell the complexities and show, you know, what colonialism has done to your people and how it has pushed people out and how it has constructed, it, it has erased us from the map, right? If going back to, to your, your comment about maps. Um, and, and so in doing that and understanding then the amazing political connections that have existed between Mexicanos and Puerto Ricanos in Chicago, and how that that solidarity has pushed so many political issues in Chicago, yet I'm also confronted sort of with the notion that women are also absent of that conversation too, right? Because Latinidad is gendered, is race, is classed, right? And so I find myself sort of um, trying to communicate, right, and try to expose um, some of those um sort of uh, uh, what hierarchies of oppression that also manifest in our, in our work. Um, the final question I have is what message do you have for the Latino, Latina, Latinx listener at a PWI like Iowa who doesn't feel like they belong? What's like the one thing that, that you would tell them? It can be more than one thing. You can give a laundry list. Karma's like ready to go. Well, yeah, I mean, because I would start by being cynical and say, you're right, you don't belong because this place is a racist shithole. <laughs> and so it's not for you. And thank God you don't belong here. But you know what? Fight like hell to make space for you here because this place should give you what you need and you should take everything you need from it. And if you don't find the resources here, there's people at other institutions like you can always find what you need and don't be afraid to ask because it's yours to take. I, I, I wish that I had found something like this. I mean, I was so grateful that the center was here um, to someone actually just confirm that this place was racist because whenever someone would yell at me or call me names on the bus or walking home, 
and I would tell anyone, they would all say, but we legalized gay marriage in 2009 verbatim. And so again, for someone to just say, like, you're not going crazy. Um, yeah, if you're not finding your people, you, again, find your own people outside of academia. That's what it looked like for me. And then maybe in other departments, I think what incredible how much time I would have saved if I had met someone in other departments that knew the language to what I was sort of by myself finding out visually in my studio and run out of that place that is making you feel that and just find your people. You have allies in the in in Latino studies, in African American studies, in in LGBTQ um, queer studies, um, find them and help them and 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 ask them to help you change this space. You have stories to tell. The future of Latino studies, the future of social sciences, lies in the histories that has yet, have yet to be written. Um, and your story is as valid as anybody else's. So find yourself some alleys, arm yourself with the language that we need to use in some of these circles, bring your language, bring your experiences to bear in the classroom and never be ashamed to share them and start from that epistemological point of view. I think we need to validate that the fact that the black and brown and queer epistemological point of view is an important one that, that, that needs to be validated, that needs to uh, uh, be told. And so I, I would say, yeah. And if the university doesn't provide it, come up with your own community organizations and community groups to do it. Come up with your own press, come up with your own books and write them. Because I think I'm kind of old school, so I, I, I want to see books uh, written about all of these, a lot of these issues. And so um, I, I would encourage, in fact, that's what I, that's what I tell my students that I have been most challenged and most affirmed when I quiet my own desire to kind of help them understand all of this amazing literature and, and, and share with them that literature, and I start listening to their, their stories and their language and the, sto- and, the, and the perspectives that they bring to the classroom. You know, I remember some of the um, one student from Chicago. I had never included music in my classes um, because I tended to be, you know, kind of really mainstream. And all of a sudden it's like, profe, you have to listen to this music and what these people are saying. And there were some obscure artists and later on it became kind of reggaeton, you know, Calle 13 and all of that. And all of a sudden it's like, I'm teaching about that stuff in my class because that's what the students want to, want to hear. So I think that we need to push the institutions to really open those spaces, but I think we also need to continue to stay open um, to all of the new, the, the new perspectives that they're bringing and their stories and their language and their, their amazing stories. Great. Oh, this, just a little, this yeah. does not have to go on the radio, but I was like, how did, in my mind, I was like, I bet it's Calle 13. Yeah. But because for me, they were also bridging that, like the art, but also bringing the politics, which yeah. I think I hadn't seen a lot in my generation when it was happening. And I remember tapping into that and being like, oh, they're, they're thinking the same. The product is, a, is music, obviously, but for me, it was visual, but yeah. sort of just made the connection. I was like, I bet. I bet it's going to I can tell you, I was in a Latino studies class and a student, a, a Puerto Ricana, says to me, Profe, you need to listen to Querido FBI, which is one of the songs that it just kind of catapulted them, you know, from the, and, and it just, it was like, wow, 
was I living in a bubble? And then from there on, you know, the Latinidad, uh, the Latino and, and Simapas and, you know, all of this work. And so now, actually now I use Calle 13 as a way to engage issues of ma masculinity, as a way of deconstructing, you know, the, the masculinity of reggaeton mm -hmm. uh, that uh, there's some colleagues that have written about that. Yeah. Oh, have you seen the the, the recent-ish uh, Bad Bunny video? Yeah. Uh, I'm blanking on the name of the song. Someone from the audience. Oh, uh, begins with a C, I think. Now, Bad Bunny and, and Calle 13 and, and no, Renee. No, uh, no, the, the, although that that work has been really interesting too. But no, it's on it's on his uh, his kind of the his solo album. Um, oh gosh! But thinking about gender and uh, and the video kind of works around gender nonconformity and visualize it and really it's it's a it's an amazing video. I, I, I'm kind of catching up with that okay. funny. So <laughs> I'll pull it up on YouTube here after we're done. Uh, thank you so much for uh, for for joining us for joining us for all of the programming. A round of applause for our guest, please. Uh, we love to hear your thoughts uh, about the podcast, about any of the programming we're doing uh, on Twitter. We're at uh, at Imagining Lat for the podcast. Uh, also, feel free to shoot us an email at podcast at imaginingLatinidades.com. Uh, additionally, please share this podcast with friends. And my begging, please give us five stars on Apple Podcasts or wherever you happen to listen to your podcast. Rate us highly. Uh, please don't rate us uh, poorly. <laughs> Uh, but those good ratings and reviews help to expose us to more people and give us a fighting chance of making it onto curated lists and stuff, which help us helps us to grow our audience. Uh, all that said, thank you for listening. Please check the show notes uh, for any links uh, and, and resources that we talked about. Uh, and that is it.